tonight we have Jamari, who is the head strategist at Snowball. Snowball actually combines multiple DeFi protocols to create an interconnected experience, swapping stable coins, depositing liquidity, and auto compounding liquidity rewards. They are primarily hosted right now on Avalanche, and we are excited to have Jamari over for a very interesting DeFi conversation. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Thank you. It's an absolute pleasure. Absolutely. So before we dive into the complexity of auto compounding, liquidity, stable coin swaps, let's give everybody an idea of how your personal journey within crypto started. Tell us your ups and downs and your Dijin uh, stories of aping in maybe into Doge and Shiba. It seems to be it's training a lot, but tell us how you got started. Um, I guess a good way to start is um, I'm originally kind of give context of who I am. My name is Jamari. I tell people a good way to remember is Jamari goes so far in his Ferrari. Jamari, not that I have, a, <laughs> not that I have one, um, but I, I have been on a safari, which was crazy great. Um, but I'm from California in the Bay Area. Went to Howard University, which is in Washington D.C., where I studied civil engineering. Um, got my uh, my minor in Spanish, and then I did my master's in business administration. Uh, then from there, I went to Carnegie Mellon, which is in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. And I um, went for my PhD in engineering and public policy. And really, I did that because I was interested in combining um, my technical skills with my soft skills. And what we really focused on was kind of risk assessment, how you look at engineering systems and their impact on people. And, and I mentioned this because that led me to looking into um, voting systems like um, the, mo- the mechanism of voting right now is still very, very rudimentary and relies on on the system of, uh, at least in the United States, of a representative democracy. And I was curious if we could do something better, if we could do more of a direct democracy or an informed democracy where people vote based upon uh, the, their understanding of a topic. So I was delving into this, doing research into how I could do web-based voting and, and meet this goal of providing high accessibility while having security. So I was reaching out to various cybersecurity specialists and cryptographers, and I ended up reaching out to David Chom, who is one of the the, the great minds of cryptography that um, under underpins um, things like Bitcoin, like his work. So I reached out to him. He um, he had an interest in voting. He was doing things around random sampling of voting and various other mechanisms using um, crypt- cryptographic techniques. But he also mentioned blockchain te- related technologies as a methodology for achieving that goal. And that was interesting, interesting to me. And then I so I looked into what he was referencing. And at that time, um, it, it was 2016 and uh, Ethereum is what I came across first. And then I and I was backtracking, seeing how it was connected to Bitcoin, start delving into well, what is this thing? Why does it matter? And why is this a tool that he's looking at using? And what I realized was, aside from the the cryptography being used and the primitives of empowering users and being another means of creating these pseudo anonymous identities that you can then attach, uh, attach uh, attestations to, to actually say, okay, this is a person. You, you had this space where people were quickly deciding what public policy would look like within this sphere. They were deciding what monetary policy should be for themselves and what that value should be. And that was amazing to me because I've heard, I heard, heard about Bitcoin, like kind of culturally a little bit, like the movie Dope had already came out. Um, you, you had heard a little <laughs> bit about S- Silk Road, but 
it didn't resonate to me what people were really making. It was just stories. And I didn't necessarily have the interactions with someone to say, no, these people are deciding on a new system of living, a new a new governmental, a new um, e- economic system for themselves. This was elective economics, elective governance. And, and that really was exciting for, for me. So I started delving in. I saw that how viable this is long-term. I looked at uh, kind of what the security risks were. I saw that quantum um, cryptography, um, not quantum cryptography, that quantum computing could be an issue whenever that, that comes into being, right? Because of Shor's algorithm and Grover's algorithms, which are two algorithmic approaches to being able to de- decrypt um, or, or uncover information that, that has been encrypted. Um, and I saw that the elliptical key cryptography, which is the methodology of securing um, the, the public-private key pairs in this space, was something that might be vulnerable in the future. So I so I ended up um, co-founding the Quantum Resistant Ledger, um, which w- which was launched. Um, they raised about four million dollars. It was about a hundred million dollar um, network valuation when I left, and that was my first foray into the space. Um, coming into the space, finding a need. And then trying to work to resolve that that need in the space, and then from there, I really just had the bug, and and I start delving into to protocols, into crypto economics, into incentive mechanisms, into um, the the entire systems design, and how we can create systems that are choice based, where you're no longer um, stuck in your geopolitical location. Um, to, to what governs your life, but you can choose a system that reflects your values and, and your interests and people can join with you in that and abide by those rules and create new value. So that's how I got into the cryptocurrency space. That's a very fascinating and very different from uh, the previous guests that we've had so far in the podcast. Seems like your journey was actually driven by the cryptography and the technology, whereas the majority of people that would usually find the blockchain space would be either through their friends or because some sort of coin or a protocol is launching uh, a new functionality or, again, just fear of missing out and jumping into Ethereum wagon and enjoying the smart contracts. Yeah, no, it, it is interesting, but I think it's because there there are... Um, there are cultural factors. So because of the people that I hang out with and the crowds that I'm with and 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 kind of just the, the interactions I have, it wasn't my social circle that was talking about these type of things. Now my social circles are talking about it. But in that early in these earlier stages, um, there, it, it kind of goes by, by, by word of mouth and, and kind of like and then there's a pipeline. So luckily, because I was interested in technology, I was able to get insight into the benefits of what was being built. I, I wish I would have heard about it sooner. <laughs> <laughs> Don't we all? <laughs> well, I, I feel like still, we're still at the early stages where we're still porting some of the main functionalities from the centralized finance and just current market making of things, the like automated market makers and liquidity provision for certain assets, the way that majority of the current market makers work within the centralized finance. But there are brand new iterations of new products that are popping out consistently throughout the rabbit hole when you dive into it on DeFi. And it feels like, from what I've read so far, Snowball is one of them with the auto-compounding liquidity and stablecoin swaps to reducing the slippage. So tell us, what is Snowball and what part does it play within DeFi? 
Yes. Snowball um, was actually one of the first native dApps um, serving the decentralized finance market on Avalanche. Um, Pangolin, the, the exchange, was was pretty much the, the first one. And there was a couple of other exchanges that were forking Uniswap as well. But Snowball came because we saw that there, there was a need, even in that early stage, for products that allow, that optimize and provide a tool set for users to be able to better deal with the rewards that they might generate from what's, what we call the liquidity pools or, or, or farming. And basically what happens, because um, Pangolin um, is, is, is a decentralized exchange that is basically reliant on individuals providing both sides of the assets for a trade, they provide an, an incentive with with their token, their governor's token, pangolins, for people to actually um, um, supply that that liquidity so that trades can happen. So therefore, um, they have additional incentives above the transaction fees. But what was happening is people wanted to actually increase their underlying principle that they were depositing in into that liquidity and not necessarily have the, the pangolin governance tokens. Not that um, they didn't want the pangolin governance token, but they wanted their underlying asset more. So we saw that we could provide the tool set that would allow users to be able to um, compound or reinvest those rewards back into the asset that they were providing into that liquidity pool. And that was our very first product. But for us, it was more than just having a tool set, but providing a framework for more tools to be built that represent the needs of the community. So we quickly um, worked towards becoming a decentralized autonomous organization which is basically um, an entity that's that uh, for us, its, its ownership is represented by by the, the snowball token, our, our um, snob. And that allows people to have a say in, how, in what is being built, how funds are being spent, and the direction of snowball as an organization. So with that, we were continually looking to find ways where we can expand decentralized finance on the Avalanche network. So after providing this auto compounding aspect, we saw that another need was the ability to be able to move between uh, stable assets or assets that have similar value in a way that had lower slippage because these decentralized exchanges have unique algorithms that are looking to basically find the balance between um, but between two assets. So um, so they use what's called a bonding curve. And the way I normally explain is imagine that um, if, if you didn't have to have the stock market, which has a, like a centralized order book. And when you put up sales and buys and then they, they match your orders, right? If that didn't exist, um, imagine that um, I'm coming to you and I'm saying, hey, um, I have $100 and I have a hundred um, um, Google stock tokens, right? $100 worth of Google stock tokens. So I, I, I have a hundred of each of these and I want to allow you to be able to, to, to trade. Um, I don't know which one you want to trade. So let's say you want want to sell your Google stock five dollars worth of it. So you would give me five dollars worth of your of your Google stock, and you would take five dollars out out of, of my my hand, right? So now I have ninety five dollars, um, ninety five dollars, and I would have a hundred and five Google stock. So therefore, that ninety five dollars should be equivalent to the value of a hundred and five Google stock. So, so therefore, now I'm kind of I'm changing the value and the weights by what by what actions people are taking in the market. So, 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 so that's kind of what happens inside these decentralized exchanges. And then 
but there's a risk there because now you're changing the weights. You're you might give giving somebody something that they really don't want a lot of. So the so the incentive tokens come on top to provide a reason for you to do that above the transaction fees. And then we're compounding that for you. We're selling that off and getting more of that underlying um, maybe USD and, and Google stock for you in that liquidity pair so as you can have a stronger position. So so now at the end of the day, you have more of both than when you started. Um, so that's that's was our first product. Then we moved it into the stable swap, which allows you to, even if you're switching between, if you're switching between uh, US dollars in Canada and U.S. dollars in in in, in South Korea, that they're both U.S. dollars, so you should be able to change it, exchange it one one for for one. There shouldn't be any um, changing of what that expected value should be. So we provided an a curve that allowed us to provide a more balanced perspective when assets are supposed to have similar value. Um, so that was our stable vault. Where, um, where we've been providing the ability to move between native TUSD, which is the trust token, um, USDT, DAI, FRAX, which is a um, algorithmic and collateral stablecoin, and uh, and DAI. Um, and soon we're going to be adding USDCE. Nice. That's uh, quite a, a wide range of different offerings. I'd like to focus on the first offering that you have through Snowball, which is the compounding aspect of it um, and i believe it's called snow globes so for e- everybody who is listening right now th- there's this mechanic in the in the markets um in order to reduce the slippage for the decentralized exchanges they need to have liquidity backing those specific pairs and those specific pairs are essentially provisioned by the users which is called providing liquidity in the marketplace and that's what jamari you just explained essentially that balancing the pool so what you guys are doing is when you, you are working, for example, with Pangolin, right? Pangolin rewards their liquidity providers with their native token, which is PNG, for rewards of providing liquidity. So what you're taking is you're taking the liquidity provision tokens that are given to you once you deposit the liquidity into Pangolin, and then you are acquiring those rewards automatically and buying back the underlying assets which provide the liquidity in that pool, right? So sometimes it's 50-50, sometimes it's 60-40, right? Depending on the uh, allocation within that pool, which allows you this compounding of the return because you're adding to the pool, you're taking more market share of the pool and therefore the next reward block or the next rewards are essentially going to be presumably higher considering that the overall size of the pool is going to be staying the same. Exactly. I don't think I can explain that better myself. (laughs) Well, we tried to simplify things here for everybody to ease their way into the world of DeFi. So you're supercharging these returns, right? You're auto-compounding. What's what's the benefit from the Snowball protocol? Are you guys taking a certain percentage of that swap? Are you guys taking a certain yield curve outside of the... Yes, absolutely. Snowball takes a 10% performance fee because we are um, in increasing um, people's return. Um, in addition, we also, for our users, because we are a DAO and a community base, we also provide snowballs to to uh, externally to our users as a way of providing them a means of, of, of having a say um, in the direction of our protocol and what tools we build for them next. Um, but we do take a 10% um, fee. So for example, if you're, if you're APR is supposed to be hypothetically fifty percent. Your your APY after compounding might be 
89%. That's not the exact numbers, but like we basically um, increase your, your returns. And then we take 10% from, from that profit that we're helping you, you generate um, in that process. Um, and yeah, and, and then we, we keep it simple and clean and we, uh, and, and we sell our portion and, and, and buy more snowballs. That sounds great. Yeah, basically, essentially, the people you're incentivized to provide a, a higher return for those yield assets that the, essentially the users deposit into your vaults, and you take just a certain percentage of that incentive that you have on your hands, which is increasing that return for the clients. That's a, a very interesting model. Do you use a leverage within the auto compounders or? Is you just basically looping the rewards? So yes. So for our original base products, um, those were just um, the depositing into the liquidity pool and then um, compound the rewards. However, we recently have started embarking upon what's called folding strategies, and we use those for lending products. So for example, recently um, since the avalanche rush has started, where I believe it started off with eight eight hundred one hundred eighty million was being invested into avalanche projects. Um, we had Ave, Binky, and Tr- Trader Joe um, providing lending so- solutions. And in, in addition to providing lending, they provided incentives, so additional tokens to people, um, or Avax, to people who are providing liquidity for, 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 for borrowing, or also for people who are borrowing as well. So people are getting actually paid to borrow at the moment because they're trying to make sure that they have sufficient liquidity for, for, for the network as well as part of gaining market share. So what we've been doing is if you're getting paid to borrow and to, to lend, it actually makes sense to borrow as much as possible and to lend as much as possible. So we have a folding strategy. Um, we, we deposit um, the principal and then we borrow um, up to approximately 95% of what's capable of being borrowed. Then we redeposit that what was borrowed back in, in, into the, the depositing side and borrow as much as we can off of that. And we keep folding back and forth until we reach the, the, the limits of what can be borrowed. And because it's a single asset, we're able to do this with, with much less risk because even if there's a fluctuation price, it's reflected on both sides of that asset. And then we're able to receive the rewards um, in, in a high in a higher measurement. So if a reward might normally be 8%, um, after folding it, it might be, for example, to the 32% for us, depending on, on what the collateral ratio is. Um, so we, we can fold sometimes two times, sometimes three times or four times, depending on how much collateral is necessary for, for each fold. Um, and then those are leveraged and we are able to raise the return rates in those cases um, via that strategy. That's, uh, I found this to be a, a very common strategy amongst uh, a lot of the users. And I found myself doing this a lot manually, but you guys essentially s- making the solution automatic and within just one point and click that auto folding strategy is deployed on Snowball. Absolutely. Yes. And we're looking at, we're planning on ex- expanding a little bit into more of this experimental strategy where we allow you to actually deposit a single asset such as a stable coin. And then um, it, it would actually change which which network or platform is depositing in by whoever has the best rate. Um, we're, we're looking at and leveraging and implementing that in the upcoming week, actually. So that's a, a close uh, cross blockchain. So for example, across... Uh... Avax, Cross, ETH, Cross, Polygon, etc. No, no, cross-chain, cross-chain is something we are working on as well, but that's not quite as ready. This will be between Ave, Binky, and Trader Joe. 
which is all still on the Avalanche network, but basically moving those assets between those platforms. Got it. So essentially, uh, cross uh, cross app uh, yes. rotation fold. That's that's very interesting. Yeah, because not every single marketplace for lending and borrow will be providing exactly the same rates, and depending on demand and supply curves, you might see better rates or cross folding strategies across different platforms. That's that makes complete sense, and that's very viable, I think, especially on Avalanche, right? Because the transaction fees. Uh, compared to Ethereum are just so minuscule and you're able to fold as many times as possible and not even affecting the overall return. Yes, absolutely. Um, There are a lot of benefits to having the reduced cost of transactions as well as the speed that's on the Avalanche network. How are you guys liking the overall consensus structure and the architecture of Avalanche? From our experience, we found this to be a very reliable and a very fast network. We have been very excited about the potential of Avalanche, particularly around the, the, the subnets, the ability to build a, additional networks that leverage the consensus mechanism, um, in, 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 which is, I think, really awesome because now you can create new applications that are, have their own rule sets that operate in a separate environment that might be able to maximize, for example, the benefits of that consensus speed. Because the the, the C chain is really fast, but the reality is that it could be even faster if if the, the, the EVM had been structured slightly, slightly different. So being able to actually use a different virtual machine or a different um, um, computation approach to consensus, you could actually pick up even, even more speed on Avalanche. So we're really excited about the direction of of new subnets in the future, but even C chain itself is is spectacular because you you have all the tool sets that was created by Ethereum for Solidity and Viper, and and you can directly use them in, within the, the Avalanche space and and really push the, the the limits of what's there. So we're discovering um, new things that people on Ethereum haven't been able to discover yet because it was too costly to find out. We actually have seen um, contracts hit the block limit because enough transactions have been able to occur to really um, fill up uh, the, the the contract's memory and storage um, within a single transaction, which would be exorbitant prices on Ethereum to have happen. So <laughs> we're having new experiences that we're having <laughs> to, to design around. Yeah, which is probably what a lot of users are experiencing on Ethereum on a daily basis. For everybody who's listening right now, in the moment of this recording, I think the Ethereum gas is at priority fee at 384. Actually, no, it just switched to 424. <laughs> so, Lord the, mercy. <laughs> the, uh, and it's just uh, kind of a, 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 a product of high demand and just uh, bidding war for the block space and just execution in this volatile market, especially right now that we're entering this Q4 stage end of the year and there's a lot of different headlines and a lot of different things that being innovated within uh, many different ecosystems but avalanche seems like over the last couple of months actually delivered two certain updates I, I believe the last one was snowman that also reduced the transaction to finality time and actually brought the overall three change which is the c chain and two others which I think they're used for validate, validators, right? X, X chain and P chain. X chain and P chain. And I think overall the transaction to finality is under one second. Yes. Sub second finality. Sounds brandable. <laughs> <laughs> 
No, it is. It is. Um, yes. No. So it's amazing. So and, and you you face even new issues like MetaMask was the design is kind of the go to wallet for for many people to inter- interface with decentralized finance. I mean, there are other wallets. There's Wallet Connect, Coin ninety eight. Um, um, Avme is is designing a, a native a native option on Avalanche. But basically, the, the go to wallet MetaMask wasn't designed for these type of, of confirmation speeds and, and interactions. So we're, we're even seeing the, the limitations of tools that were designed for, for Ethereum, um, even outside of the smart contract side. So it's really amazing and fun and fun to, to see and, um, and really uh, think about what we should, should be building next to make the network better. Well, one of the things that you guys are building next and innovating on is the stable vault, right? Stable coins gained a lot of prominence over the last couple of months, especially with the recent DeFi 2.0 boom. And we have uh, Abracadabra and the pegging and yes. not uh, and backing of the stable coins. And I think you guys are also including MIM for one of the pairs. And I believe that's from Trader Joe, the looping that you guys do. But BIM is also one of the stable coins, as well as the USDC, USDT, and many others yeah. that are supported within Avalanche. So tell us, how are you guys solving this slippage issue when you have the cross-stable swap? Yes. So for us, um, we are spit like this is um, new information that's not public. We are spinning out the the, the stable prop stable vault product into its its own separate product and community. And we're doing this because there is an immediate need for the ability to be able to move between um, assets that have similar value, particularly stable coins. But more importantly, to because of the nature of how, how Avalanche um, was launched in, after Ethereum was created, after Binance Smart Chain, Avalanche has this unique opportunity to become the, the the hub because of its speed, because of its consensus mechanisms, become to become the hub of DeFi activity. And if that's true, that means that you have DAI or some asset coming from Binance over a bridge. You also have assets coming from Ethereum over a bridge. And then you also might have um, native tokens that are stable coin within the space. And then being able to move between these things that have value in a way where where you're not losing immense uh, value is vital. So for us, the stable vault spin out is going to be providing that tool. So whether you're coming with with native TUSD or you're coming over the the, the Avalanche network bridge or you're coming over any swap or, or you're coming through Elk, no matter which network you're coming through, we believe that you should be able to have a hub, a space to be able to move from one asset to another with limited loss or limited slippage. So that's what we're trying to create. And not just for stable coins, but if, if Ethereum is coming over these multiple bridges. Um, so, so you might have ETH E and you might have, have, have any swap E and maybe you have Elk E or some other e, um, ETH. You should have a space where you can move between those with minimal slippage. Um, we're also um, spinning out liquid staking soon, which is the ability to be able to to um, stake via the proof of stake system, but also re- receive a, a derivative token uh, or a sense of a derivative type of um, receipt token that, that represents what, what was deposited. And then and you can use that token one to one for the value of, of, of Avox. So you should have a space to be able to swap between those assets. Um 
when you have wrapped Bitcoin and you have tethered Bitcoin and ran BTC on the network. You should be able to move between those assets without a lot of slippage. And that's what we're building towards. This ability to be, be multi-bridge, multi-asset that are similar in value and, and have a seamless transition between them. Wow. And that's still going to be governed by the community who owns your governance token? In, in, in part, um, we will, um, because we're spinning it out, we do believe that there is benefits to making sure that there is the opportunity for other people to provide guidance and direction to, to that. But uh, Snowball will be um, releasing that as a pro- powered by Snowball and initially um, providing a lot of the support for that in, in the early stages as we grow out the specific community for the stable vault. That's, that sounds very exciting and uh, feels like sometimes is missing from the space is focusing on the slippage when swapping out specifically relatively stable coins when they're supposed to be pegged to exactly the same value. No matter the actual architecture behind them, right? you still would want to achieve this minimum slippage through this smart way of engineering. The one thing very interestingly that I would like to point out is that you said it's going to be also done cross-chain. Would that also entail that not only you'll be able to swap with minimum slippage with different assets on different chains, but also you'll be able to transfer those assets between the chain, aka the bridge? Well, yes. Yeah. So, so what this means when I say that is, for example, um, let's say that you want to get to the what was a Binance smart chain today, right? And and then you're currently on Avalanche. Instead of having to go back to Ethereum and then from Ethereum to Binance Smart Chain, you can you can start from where you are, exchange your asset into whatever um, similar asset, similar value asset is, and and go straight from Avalanche to Binance Smart Chain. Or if you're if you're trying to to actually redeem your funds and, and move off chain, um, and you currently have Dai or Frax. Uh, you'll be able to swap it into TUSD or when native USDT comes to Avalanche to, to USDT and redeem it directly so it comes in into your, your bank account. We want to provide all the off-ramps and bridges and, and means of moving your funds as easy as possible. So we want that cross-chain experience to, to be easier for, for our users. Got it. Okay. Is that somehow related to the Metapools? Um, Metapools are a way of actually extending um, one of the uh, extending a stable vault essentially. So if you start off with with three or four assets inside and say, oh hey, there's this new asset that's actually similar valued as well, but it wasn't in that original pool. Um, um, how, how do you add something new into there because it's an immutable smart contract? Well, what you can do is you can essentially um, with with a new smart contract flatten that original pool. To, to its assets and then essentially add the, the, this new asset into it um, um, algorithmically. So it's still a separate contract, but you can actually um, basically get insight into the components of it and then trade in, in and out of it with, with this external asset that has a similar similarly pegged value. Okay, so basically you, you have a pool of assets. Let's say you have a three stable coins like USDC, USDT, and, and MIM, for example, right? Yes. And then there's a, a brand new asset, also a stable coin, let's say it's going to be DAI, and they're all wrapped within the Avalanche ecosystem. So they all have this .e extension, for example, except for right. MIM, because MIM is, I think it's all native at this point in time on Avalanche. Anyway, when you add a, a new asset into this meta pool, 
you basically have an ability to do a swap between the two to maintain the lower slippage. Yes, exactly. So so you, you can still trade between um, the, the new asset and the assets within that original stable vault with, with low low slippage. Got it. That makes sense. That's that's quite interesting. So seems like you guys are going to be innovating to reduce that slippage, uh, which I believe will drive a lot more efficiency in the marketplace, um, especially when you increase the velocity of capital through lending and borrowing protocols. Now you need this efficiency of lower slippage between stable assets, like a treasury assets for different funds or companies. Um, and that would be a great way to approach the solution. Now, we have a lot of things developing right now within DeFi, right? There's a big talk about DeFi 2.0 and acquiring the yield producing assets, wrapping them, leveraging them, borrowing against them. What are your thoughts on DeFi 2.0? Yeah, so I, I've heard the term DeFi 2.0. I have not had the opportunity to really settle into what that fully encompasses and means. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we just had a 1.0 yesterday, it feels like. Right. <laughs> but basically, it's an approach of uh, collateralized yield-producing assets. And yield-producing assets is something that you guys sort of influencing that environment when, for example, somebody provides liquidity to Pangolin with um, a two-token pool and they get a receipt token back, right? Uh, which uh, resembles their position or ownership within that pool. So then you basically can take this receipt token and you can leverage against it or you can loop through it or you can borrow against it because you still have those tokens in the pool. Yes, they still yes. signify some sort of value. It kind of resembles the functionality of what you guys are trying to do with Metapools, even though they're not necessarily yield-producing assets, but at the same time, you're trying to maxify, um, maximize the efficiency of the capital. Yeah, no, absolutely. Okay, I, I do understand what you mean. So, so, so my, my perspective is this. The decentralized finance space is, is still growing, and there's a lot of infrastructure that is, is still be, being built out. There's still new mechanisms. There's still new um, a, a experiments that are being played out in this space. Because here's what here's what, what I thought when I came to the space. This is the perfect space for rapidly iter in, iterating through a variety of economic concepts and financial instruments and products to determine what is actually viable and what works and, and, and what's sustainable. So whereas in history, it used to take years and, and an exorbitant amount of money and many people to come together to establish a financial instrument or a new way of doing something, we can accelerate that process and we can actually take all the, those theories about for financial products that, that are inside books and put them into practice. Um, like the, the bonding curve work, like that was really a viable solution um, outside of the cryptocurrency blockchain space because the because the, the limitations of the blockchain space were uniquely situated uniquely created where bonding curves were necessary. So what we are now seeing with this DeFi 2.0 is people are trying to continue to innovate, find ways of avoiding um, liquidity incentives being a way of de depressing price, for example. So, so, so how do you um, structure um, your, your, your organization or, or your monetary policy in a way that's sustainable while still pro providing the incentives to align people to take the behaviors that you want them to 
to do. I think Defy 2.0 is just a continuation of the same experimenting to identify the best way of getting the desired behaviors in a financial sense out of people while while also achieving uh, their, their personal goals that they, they want for themselves. So it, it, it's all interesting and some of them become more complex and then and it becomes an issue of of what are the underlying economic principles behind this? What are the exploits? What are the concerns? And, and, and what's the potential of this when this thing is scaled out? Like what happens if everybody adopts the, 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 this approach? Um, and, and I think that's really what we always have to be, be looking at is, is sustainability. We have to look at um, how viable is this, not just to make some money to t- today, but um, as a product that exists 5, 10, 20 years from now. And I think that's where Snowball is really focused is like, how do we build out the suite of products and infrastructure so that what we're building lasts for 10, 20, 30 years? And it's the primitives of the new financial institutions, ones that are owned by the the users and not just because uh, um, one guy had had 95 percent. Of, uh, uh, of the stock on, on day one, right? Like we want to create environments where everybody can participate. And that's what I think Defy 2.0 is really effective at, um, as people are calling it, is because it's still looking to um, bring together people in a way that empowers them in the process while aligning their their, their interests with the long-term vi- viability. So, so that's kind of my thought. It's not directly answering it, but that's my sentiment about the Defy 2.0 space. I, I 100% agree. It's, uh, it's very kind of still in the same trajectory as the original DeFi, but at the same time, it looks like the space is maturing and it's trying to find more efficient ways to get more out of the current capital that's being locked within DeFi. Even though the DeFi capital and is flowing strong and the increase in total assets that are being locked up within Ethereum or any other blockchain especially Avalanche at this point, is growing at the rapid space. So the space is essentially evolving to try to gather more return out of those assets. And you guys are doing a great job in that with innovating with the stable swap and all the auto compounding technologies that you guys have. Funny enough, I think the thing that's most important in this space that we don't talk about is really the UX the, the user experience part of it. I think the, the, the tools are great because even for Snowball, like mm-hmm. we have forked um, from Saddle Finance um, work who, who, who was using the stable the, the stable swap and, and the invariant curves from there. Um, and we were a fork of Pickle Finance, which was also on, on Ethereum uh, initially. And we've been advancing on, on what they've developed. But the area we're trying to press on is not just having the, these underlying tools right, but the experience uh, of our users start to improve. Like um, one of the things that's missing in the space is is notification systems. Um, how do you alert people about, about what's happening or when major changes are, are happening in, in the space? How, how do you contact them? Um, that, that That's a big area that we're looking at innovating on. Um, so how- send them a DM in the MetaMask. <laughs> right, so, like, right, no, so that's the kind of thing that we think should exist, but it doesn't. Mm-hmm. Um, now, there, there is ways to accomplish that, right? Because everybody has a pub, public-private key, so you have a public address. So, so therefore, you, you can actually do, do a signed signature and then ha- have a, a small messaging center that works directly in your MetaMask. You're still preserving your privacy, but you have a way to, to talk and alert people about things. Um, 
we're not doing that quite yet. We're looking more so in like how do you provide maybe an alert on the page where you take uh where we're looking at what their balances when they sign in with their wallet, and then and then you provide them whatever relevant alert is based on their current situation, and that's a way of maximizing their privacy while still kind of developing in, into the actual product the, the alert system that that individual might need um, without tracking them. So so th- that's one of the areas I think is important because um, it's not just the, the te- technologies, but it's how people interact with it. Um, what's their experience with it? Like, how do you improve the, the swapping process or adding liquidity into a way where it's not seeming so so complicated, where you provide them the information somebody needs about w- what, what the risks are, but also allows them to, to be able to choose things easily and, and jump in, in and out of products a- as needed. That's I think that's where the, the innovation really needs to be happening in this space and where we're trying to pursue. 100% agree. I remember my first ever interaction with MetaMask and submitting the transaction on Ethereum and just sitting there for five minutes not knowing where my funds are. Right. <laughs> I think Avalanche with the bridge UI and the experience kind of solved that issue, specifically when you have this kind of each and every step out of the 35 validators. Yes, that's a perfect like they were providing information you needed and wanted to know, like, where am I in this process? What's happening with it right now? I, I think that that bridge was a perfect example. Exactly. Where, for example, the previous experiences with other bridges, such as Ethereum and Polygon, it just, you send a transaction, you just sit there and wait and pray. <laughs> 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 but uh, yeah, UI, UI UX is, is a great point. And it seems like, the space is maturing and kind of tries to get away from this very minimalistic uh, approach in the UI um, that a lot of uh, current apps essentially fork from the Uniswap. That's kind of refreshing to see as well. Um, I honestly enjoy your UI. It's very simple. It's uh, configurable and goes straight to the point with all the metrics, especially on the dashboard. one thing that I want to mention, uh, going back to what you said, is the importance of the governance of the actual users who are using the protocol and their input and uh, ability to maneuver and direct the protocol in the direction of what their actual needs are. What are your thoughts on developing a protocol and slowly removing yourself out of the equation when you make the decisions? Oh, I'm, I'm 100% for that. Um, that's that's one of the reasons. Um, I, I don't know if you know, but uh, Snowball was was created by three pseudo anonymous people initially: um, Big Wampa, Abombo Sasquatch, and and Eight Bit Giraffe. Um, one Very of the, iconic names. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, and one of the things that Abombo Sasquatch has begun to to do is he's started to remove himself from a lot of the process. He still talks every once in a while inside the chats. But in general, the the pushing or the direction of the protocol has been minimized substantially over over time. And the reason he, and he's even stated this, the reason he's done that is because he believes it's important that that it it doesn't become about an individual's perspective, but it becomes about the collective whole's alignment towards a common goal. So following making sure that we have the XNOB system, which is a conviction voting system, which is basically like people lock their funds for uh, up to two years and they get a higher voting weight um, over that time period because it's kind of temporal. If you're if you're locked in for two years, well, you're probably going to be voting for things that are going to make make sure by the time two years come up, <laughs> the, 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 the funds are worth the, the same and are more, right? Um, versus if, if you can move, move in and out, well, you might not be voting it 
for the long-term interest of the protocol. So, so it might have some friction for people, but it actually serves a, a necessary need. So after instituting that, he, he, he began to, to, to move back. Um, me, me personally, um, I, I, I take a similar approach. I, I am involved in governance, but I try not to um, it, like present my individual perspective too strongly in, when we're talking about proposals. Um, I, I try to actually br- bring the facts. I, I bring research. Um, I, I actually try to bring the right people in, into the room so that people can see what the culture of collaboratively decision-making looks like. And I, th- I think that, that that's vital because otherwise it's easy to fall into a developer di- di- dictatorship and and not leave. <laughs> Do you think it's still beneficial at the start of a brand new protocol or an idea still have this kind of a single point of decision making while you're still developing the brand, while still developing something new? And then remove yourself or doing it the other way around, where you start as a decentralized organization and you mainly source the direction where it moves from the users. I think it's 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 harder to let go of the reins of power than than than, than it is to to uh, have everybody just 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 give you the power but i think i think really what you should be doing is you should be trying to do both simultaneously you should be presenting a culture and a vision that resonates with people and this isn't to say that that you can't have someone as an executive and you can't have executive decisions making because i think there's impact and validity to having those those type of people but there, there needs to be oversight that there needs to be understanding that the overarching governance has control over the situation and can inform the decisions that are being made and have sufficient, as they say, checks and balances to make sure that the will of the DAO is being enforced. So at Snowball, we do have have a multi-sig council. Um, and, and when we do have um, some developers that are actively developing and moving Snowball forward, but they are they are bound to the will of, of the DAO through that multi-sig holders enforcing some, some decisions and then also the, the limitation of the funds that the DAO has pr- provided them in general to achieve said uh, objectives. So I, I think it, it, it's, it's both and more. Like it's, it's really the, the, the tough road. You, you have to be a, a founding father, founding mother, while, while, while also um, just being one of everybody else. That makes sense. So I think, uh, yeah, the power essentially comes from the com- the elegant combination between the idea makers and people who are closely connected to certain topics and have in-depth knowledge of certain mechanics. And therefore, they are able to create these decisions. And then it's for the users to come up with the governance and essentially the consensus to move either way of A, way of B, way of C, etc. as many of the decisions that they are. No, right. And I always think about this example. Imagine that that, that I create a, a platform, right? Mm-hmm. And then it becomes the most, and I decide, hey, I'm going to one day give this as governance to everybody. But first, I'm going to build the thing, right? I'm going to build all the infrastructure, all the frills and whistle in, in, in the reflection of, of what I believe it, it should, should, should look like. And when I feel like it's time to hand it over to everyone else, they're going to be handed all this power potentially and not know 
how to handle it, what to do with it. They weren't trained. They weren't provided the opportunity to, to create a culture built around how do we govern this thing? How do we interact? What are the expectations are for ourselves as a community? And those are the things that you have to think about um, if you're really trying to create these decentralized or, or organizations is that it's a learning experience for everybody because the script is not written already. I see. I see. That's that's a very powerful way to think about it. So we've talked about DAOs. We've talked about DeFi 2.0. We've talked about Avalanche. We've talked about Snowball and different products that you guys are working on and innovating on top to maximize the efficiency of the capital and increasing the return on top of that, while at the same time benefiting from this high throughput, low transaction finality within the Avalanche blockchain. From your experience going into the ecosystem and playing around with it, what do you think is missing? What do you think that needs to happen within the Avalanche ecosystem or overall within DeFi to give it another leg up? Outside of the notification systems. <laughs> um, I mean, well, one, there's one known, there's one big wide known that everybody, I think, acknowledges um, would be important, which is the ability to have um, digital identities that you can use um, use toward, towards products without it um, exposing y- yourself in a way that you know, that works against you. Because basically, I put it like this. Um, being able to be pseudo-anonymous allows you the ability to take part in transactions that might be important to you in a way where your privacy is pre- preserved and you can't be necessarily discriminated against against um, for, for things that are outside of your control, like um, be, being a man or a woman, the, the, the color of, of your skin, um, your, your geopolitical location, right? You can participate in this space regardless of all those items. However, because we are missing the ability to have identity and reputation in the on-chain sense, we're not able to actually provide some some way of mitigating risks for maybe more uh, more trusted products, right? So, so, so c- collateral collateral free lending or collateral lending that's below one hundred percent collateral. That's really difficult when you don't have a track history or a way of of actually um, determining if a person is trustworthy. Um, and not having that ability means that we have over collateralized systems where you have to have 150% collateral to be able to borrow against yourself. And that, that really limits the people who can participate in the space because everybody doesn't have 150% of their collateral to be able to, to do something. They might have a great idea, great concept, great means of accomplishing something, but they can't do it. The only option that I've seen that kind of is interesting is, is flash loans, but flash loans have been primarily used as a means of, of, of exploitation versus a, as a means of allowing people with, with good ideas to take advantage of, of just natural arbitrage activities, right? So, so identity, I think, is digital identities where you can attest to, to certain factors, where you can be able to, to, to move between, uh, to say, okay, th- th- this is my transaction history and I can prove this. This is, is a part of me. This is a part of me. So therefore, um, this history I, I wouldn't want to violate, so let me borrow like $10,000 because you see that I've been handling millions of dollars, right, without pulling collateral. Those things might be important, um, 
to people that are inside different financial positions. Um, that wasn't the best example of it, but I think um, like story-wise, I hope you're, you're understanding where I'm trying to come from. The ability to have trusted identity allows you to access things that people currently can't, and it allows people from varying places in the world to onboard it, it, into the space and do stuff that they currently can't do. Um, so that's that's my perspective, digital identity. So that's basically supposed to be somewhere, some middleware that would be gathering both ends of the transaction. For example, you would get an information from a certain person or user about their identity and store this information with an encryption methodology. And you would also get a request for a certain application at the same time and would only provide the necessary data for that application to process the request and keep everything else anonymous. Yes, exactly. Right. Like you, you, you want to maximize your, your privacy, but provide people the opportunity to be able to, to demonstrate the, the, their viability for a loan or for a product or, or to be included in some type of airdrop or, or something, right? Like right. The, 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 there's a variety of things that are existing that I think uh, identity pr- provides a means of, of mitigating civil attacks and, and making governance a, a little bit easier. Of, of of distributing um, um, re- revenue to people. I mean, like you can then maybe like I'm I'm not personally a, a big UBI person, but you can do u- universal basic income, right? Because you can identify people to actually spread it with, where it's not going all to one person. Um, there's a multitude of of financial experiences that we're missing out on because we don't have the ability to bring in identity. I see. Hopefully, throughout the next coming iterations of DeFi and just the evolution of the metaverse, especially right now it, that it's so prominent within the new, even the news um, and the US is talking about creating different um, metaverses and Amazon is buying a lot of GPUs of the market to produce those kind of experiences as, as a smooth uh, experience without any input or output lag. But that's that's a whole brand new conversation. It, it, it is uh, a brand new conversation. <laughs> but it's an interesting one. I mean, because you talk about Amazon. I mean, I think to today or yesterday, Facebook uh, made their parent company called um, Meta. And then their their tag is basically like MTVRS, like, or, or like basically Metaverse. So yep. you're completely right. That is where, where people are looking in a conversation we should be having as well. But hopefully within those centralized bodies taking their dive into the metaverse and trying to create their own experiences, hopefully the preservation of the inclusivity and preservation of decentralized governance follows the footstep within their creations. Yeah, I, I'm not sure how much that would happen, but I, I will say when we do have things like de- 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 Decentraland that already exist and, and in other spaces that, that are definitely embarking upon that, we have people creating these NFTs with the decentralized intellectual property and they interact with other NFTs. So I think people are creating it already. And and what I think we have to we have to be in personal agreement with as users is is what we care about and what's important to us. Because we can choose to, to use a centralized system and, and, and give up something else. Um, but I think there's more more benefits when we empower ourselves in choosing uh, decentralized approaches. Yeah. 100% agree. That's that's still up to the users and its users' responsibility to do their due diligence on what kind of experiences they're trying to have and what they're sacrificing or gaining in return. And that's that's going to be something that we here at Protocol 432 try to smoothen the line between 
white and black and give people a more objective and simplified version of what DeFi, what blockchains are, and different protocols that exist within the ecosystem. But Jamari, we've had an amazing conversation. We've covered so many different topics, and I'm sure <laughs> and I'm sure the listeners are getting a fantastic experience. What I would like to do is to give you the stage. Tell us where users and listeners can find more about Snowball, where they can learn about what you guys are working on and where they can find you or reach out to you if they have any questions. The floor is yours. All right. Thank you. Thank you. It was it was fantastic. I appreciate this time. I hope that, that you, the listener, enjoyed, enjoyed the conversation. Um, you can find more about Snowball on the website, snowball.network. You can find it on Twitter at um, SnowballDefy. Uh, you can find me on Twitter at at Jamari underscore P-J-O-M-A-R-I. Um, the, the O is like the the the, the O from octopus. So it's, it's Jamari, even though it's an O. So J-O-M-A-R-R-I underscore P. Um, you, you can hit me up on, on Discord. Um, I, I'm on Medium. I'm on Facebook. If it's a social media, I'm, I'm probably on it. Um, I, I love to talk. I love the dialogue. So, so re- reach out. Um, the, the Snowball the Discord is also open. We're welcoming. We also have this new thing called uh, Snowball Defy University. In case there's anything you want to learn, we're trying to build that up. Out, give us some feedback. Um, and yeah, we, we want to build a community that's welcoming to you and that that meets your, your needs. So so let us know how we can serve you. And always take care of, of your health, mental and physical, and, and spiritual if, if you believe in that. Um, because no matter how much money is being made, the, the, those are things that are that, that that stick with you and that matter. Thank you, everyone who just joined for another great episode. If you enjoyed this episode, please give us five stars on Apple Podcasts and consider subscribing on your platform of choice. But until then, we'll see you guys in the next one. Bye.